Section 1 of The Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malcolm Cameron. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. General Characteristics. American literature is a branch of English literature, as truly as our English books written in Scotland or South Africa. Our literature lies almost entirely in the 19th century, where the ideas and books of the Western world were freely interchanged among the nations and became accessible to an increasing number of readers. In literature, nationality is determined by language rather than by blood or geography. M. Matterlink, born a subject of King Leopold, belongs to French literature. Mr. Joseph Conrad, born in Poland, is already an English classic. Geography, much less important in the 19th century than before, was never, among modern European nations, so important as we sometimes are asked to believe. Of the ancestors of English literature, Beowulf is scarcely more significant and rather less graceful than our tree-inhabiting forebears with prehensile toes. The true progenitors of English literature are Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Italian, and French. American literature and English literature of the 19th century are parallel derivatives from preceding centuries of English literature. Literature is a succession of books from books. Artistic expression springs from life ultimately, but not immediately. It may be likened to a river which is swollen throughout its course by new tributaries and by the seepages of its banks. It reflects the life through which it flows, taking color from the shores. The shores modify it, but its power and volume descend from distant headwaters and affluents far upstream. Or it may be likened to the race life which our food nourishes or impoverishes, which our individual circumstances foster or damage but which flows on through us, strangely impersonal and beyond our power to kill or create. It is well for a writer to say, Away with books! I will draw my inspiration from life. For we have too many books that are simply better books diluted by John Smith. At the same time, literature is not born spontaneously out of life. Every book has its literary parentage, and students find it so easy to trace genealogies that much criticism reads like an Old Testament chapter of begats. Every novel was suckled at the breast of older novels, and great mothers are often prolific of anemic offspring. The stock falls off and revives, goes a-wandering, and returns like a prodigal. The family records get blurred, but of the main fact of descent there is no doubt. American literature is English literature made in this country. Its 19th century characteristics are evident and can be analyzed and discussed with some degree of certainty. Its American characteristics, no critic that I know has ever given a good account of them. You can define certain peculiarities of American politics, American agriculture, American public schools, even American religion. But what is uniquely American in American literature? 
Poe is just as American as Mark Twain. Lanier is just as American as Whittier. The American spirit in literature is a myth, like American valor in war, which is precisely like the valor of Italians and Japanese. The American, deluded by a falsely idealized image which he calls America, can say that the purity of Longfellow represents the purity of American home life. An Irish Englishman, Mr. Bernard Shaw, with another falsely idealized image of America, surprised that a fact does not fit his image, can ask, what is Poe doing in that galley? There is no answer. You can never tell. Poe could not help it. He was born in Boston and lived in Richmond, New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia. Professor Van Dyke says that Poe was a maker of decidedly un-American cameos. But I do not understand what that means. Facts are uncomfortable consorts of prejudices and emotional generalities. They spoil domestic peace, and when there is a separation, they sit solid at home while the other party goes. Irving, a shy, sensitive gentleman who wrote with fastidious care, said, It has been a matter of marvel to European readers that a man from the wilds of America should express himself in tolerable English. It is a matter of marvel, just as it is a marvel that Blake and Keats flowered in the brutal city of London a hundred years ago. The literary mind is strengthened and nurtured. It is influenced and mastered by the accumulated riches of literature. In the last century, the strongest thinkers in our language were Englishmen, and not only the traditional, but the contemporary influences of our thinkers and artists were British. This may account for one negative characteristic of American literature, its lack of American quality. True, our records must reflect our life. Our poets, enamored of nightingales and Persian gardens, have not altogether forgotten the mockingbird and the woods of Maine. Fiction, written by inhabitants of New York, Ohio, and Massachusetts, does tell us something of the ways of life in those mighty commonwealths, just as English fiction, written by Lancashire men about Lancashire people, is saturated with the dialect, the local habits, and scenery of that country. But wherever an English-speaking man of imagination may dwell, in Dorset or Calcutta or Indianapolis, he is subject to the strong arm of the empire of English literature. He cannot escape it. It tears him out of his obscure bed and makes a happy slave of him. He is assigned to the department of the service for which his gifts qualify him, and his special education is undertaken by drill masters and captains who hail from provinces far from his birthplace. Dickens, who writes of London, influences Bret Hart, who writes of California, and Bret Hart influences Kipling, who writes of India. Each is intensely local in subject matter. The affinity between them is a matter of temperament, manifested, for example, in the swagger and exaggerated characteristic of all three. California did not produce Bret Hart. The power of Dickens was greater than that of the Sierras and the Golden Gate. Bret Hart created a California that never existed. An Indian gentleman, Caucasian and Hindu, tells us that Kipling invented an army and an empire unknown to geographers and war offices. 
The ideas at work among these English men of letters are world-encircling and fly between book and brain. The dominant power is of the British Islands, and the prevailing stream of influence flows west across the Atlantic. Sometimes it turns and runs the other way. Poe influences Rossetti. Whitman influences Henley. For a century, Cooper had been in command of the British literary marine. Literature is reprehensibly unpatriotic. Even though its votaries are, as individual citizens, afflicted with local prides and hostilities, it takes only a dramatic interest in the guns of Yorktown. Its philosophy was notably uttered by Gatson Paris in the Collage de France in 1870, when the city was beleaguered by the German armies. Common studies pursued in the same spirit in all civilized country from beyond the restrictions of diverse and often hostile nationalities, a great country which no war profanes, no conqueror menaces, where souls find that refuge and unity which in former times was offered them by the city of God. The Catholicity of English language and literature transcends the temporal boundaries of states. What then of the provincialism of the American province of the empire of British literature? It is an observable general characteristic, and is it a virtue or a vice? There is a sense in which American literature is not provincial enough. The most provincial of all literature is the Greek. The Greeks knew nothing outside of Greece and needed to know nothing. The Old Testament is tribal in its provinciality. Its God is a local God, and its village police and sanitary regulations are erected into eternal laws. If this racial localism is not essential to the greatness of early literature, it is inseparable from them. We find it there. It is not possible in our cosmopolitan age, and there are few traces of it in American books. No American poet has sung of his neighborhood with naive passion as if it were all the world to him. Whitman is pugnaciously American, but his sympathies are universal. His vision is cosmic. When he seems to be standing in a city street looking at life, he is in a trance, and his spirit is racing with the winds. The welcome that we give Whitman betrays the lack of an admirable kind of provincialism. It shows us defective in local security of judgment. Some of us have been so anxiously abashed by high standards of European culture that we could not see a poet in our own backyard until European poets and critics told us he was there. This is queerly contradictory to the disposition found in some Americans to disregard the world's standards and proclaim a third-rate poet as the Milton of Oshkosh or the Shelley of San Francisco. The passage in Lowell's Fable for Critics about the American Bulwers, Disraeli, and Scots is a spoonful of salt in the mouth of that sort of gaping village reverence. Of dignified and self-respecting provincialism, such as Professor Royce so eloquently advocates, there might well be more in American books. Our poets desert the domestic landscape to write pseudo-Elizabethan dramas and sonnets about Mont Blanc. They set up an artificial Tennyson Park on the banks of the Hudson. Beside the shores of Lake Michigan, they croon the love affairs of an Arab in the desert and his noble steed. 
this is not a very grave offense for poets live among the stars and it makes no difference from what point of the earth's surface they set forth on their aerial adventures a wisconsin poet may write very beautifully about nightingales and a new england unitarian may write beautifully about cathedrals if it is beautiful it is poetry and all is well the novelists are the worst offenders there have been few of them they have not been adequate in numbers or in genius to the task of describing the sections of the country the varied scenes and habits from new orleans to the portlands and yet small band as they are with great domestic opportunities and responsibilities they have devoted volumes to paris which has an able native corps of story-makers and to italy where the home talent is first-rate in this sense american literature is too globe-trotting it has too little savor of the soil of provincialism of the narrowest type american writers like other men of imagination are not guilty to any reprehensible degree it is a vice sometimes imputed to them by provincial critics who view literature from the office of a london weekly review or from the lecture rooms of american colleges some american writers are parochial for example whittier others like mr henry james are provincial in outlook but cosmopolitan in experience and reveal their provinciality by a self-conscious internationalism probably english and french writers may be similarly classified as provincial or not mr james says that poe's collection of critical sketches is probably the most complete and exquisite specimen of provincialism ever prepared for the edification of men it is nothing like that it is an example of what happens when a hack reviewer's work in local journals is collected into a volume because he turns out to be a genius the list of poe's victims is no more remarkable for the number of non-entities it includes than the lives of the poets by the great dr johnson who was hack for a bookseller and introduced all the poets that the taste of the time encouraged the bookseller to print poe was cosmopolitan in spirit his prejudices were personal and highly original usually against the prejudices of his moment and milieu hawthorne is less provincial in the derogatory sense than his charming biographer mr james as will become evident if one compares hawthorne's american notes on england written in long ago days of national rancor with mr james's british notes on america the american scene written in our happy days of spacious vision emerson's and sphering universality overspreads carlyle like the sky above a volcanic island indeed carlyle who knew more about american life and about what other people ought to do than any other british writer earlier than mr chesterton justly complains that emerson is not sufficiently local and concrete carlyle longs to see some event man's life american forest or piece of creation which this emerson loves and wonders at well emersonized longfellow would not stay at home and write more about the excellent village blacksmith he made poetical tours of europe and translated songs and legends from several languages for the delight of the villagers who remained behind lowell was so heartily cosmopolitan 
that American newspapers accused him of Anglomania, which proves their provincialism but acquits him. Mr. Howells had written a better book about Venice than about Ohio. Mark Twain lived in every part of America, from Connecticut to California. He wrote about every country under the sun and about some countries beyond the sun. He is read by all sorts and conditions of men in the English-speaking world, and he is an adopted hero in Vienna. It is difficult to come to any conclusion about provincialism as a characteristic of American literature. American literature is, on the whole, idealistic, sweet, delicate, nicely finished. There is little of it which might not have appeared in Youth's Companion. The notable exceptions are our most stalwart men of genius, Thoreau, Whitman, and Mark Twain. Any child can read American literature, and if it does not make a man of him, it at least will not lead him into forbidden realms. Indeed, American books too seldom come to grips with the problems of life, especially the books cast in artistic forms. The essayist, expounders, and preachers attack life vigorously and wrestle with the meaning of it. The poets are thin, moonshiny, meticulous in technique. Novelists are few and feeble, and dramatists are non-existent. These generalities, subject to exceptions, are confirmed by a reading of the first 15 volumes of the Atlantic Monthly, which are a treasure house of the richest period of American literary expression. In those volumes, one finds a surprising number of vigorous, distinguished papers on politics, philosophy, science, even on literature and art. Many talented men and women whose names are not well remembered are clustered there about the half-dozen salient men of genius, and the collection gives one a sense that the New England mind, aided by the outlying contributors, was, in its one age of thought, an abundant and diversified power. But the poetry is not memorable, except for some verses by the few standard poets, and the fiction is naive. Edward Everett Hale's The Man Without a Country is almost the only story there that one comes on with a thrill either of recognition or of discovery. It is hard to explain why the American, except in his exhortatory and passionately argumentative moods, has not struck deep into American life, why his stories and verses are, for the most part, only pretty things, nicely unimportant. Anthony Trollope had a theory that the absence of international copyright threw our market open too unrestrictedly to the British product that the American novel was an unprotected infant industry. We printed Dickens and the rest without paying royalty and starved the domestic manufacturer. This theory does not explain. For there were many American novelists, published, read, and probably paid for their work. The trouble is that they lacked genius. They dealt with trivial, slight aspects of life. They did not take the novel seriously in the right sense of the word though no doubt they were in another sense serious enough about their poor productions. Uncle Tom's Cabin and Huckleberry Finn are colossal exceptions to the prevailing weakness and superficiality of American novels. Why do American writers turn their backs on life, miss its intensities, its significance? 
the American Civil War was the most tremendous upheaval in the world after the Napoleonic period. The imaginative reaction on it consists of some fine essays, Lincoln's addresses, Whitman's war poetry, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which came before the war but is part of it, one or two passionate hymns by Whittier, the second series of the Biglow Papers, Hale's The Man Without a Country, and what else? The novels laid in wartime are either sanguine melodrama or absurd idols of maidens whose lovers are at the front, a tragic theme if tragically and not sentimentally conceived. Perhaps the bullet that killed Theodore Winthrop deprived us of our great novelist of the Civil War, for he was on the right road. In a general speculation, such a might have been is not altogether futile. If Milton had died of whooping cough, there would not have been any paradise lost. The reverse of this is that some geniuses whose work ought inevitably to have been produced by this or that national development may have died too soon. This suggestion, however, need not be gravely argued. The fact is that the American literary imagination after the Civil War was almost sterile. If no books had been written, the failure of that conflict to get itself entombed in some masterpieces would be less disconcerting. But thousands of books were written by people who knew the war at first hand and who had literary ambition and some skill, and from all these books, none rise to distinction. An example of what seems to be the American habit of writing about everything except American life is the work of General Lew Wallace. Wallace was one of the important secondary generals in the Civil War, distinguished at Fort Donelson and at Shiloh. After the war, he wrote Ben-Hur, a doubly abominable book, because it is not badly written and it shows a lively imagination. There is nothing in it so valuable, so dramatically significant as a week in Wallace's war experiences. Ben-Hur fit work for a country clergyman with a pretty literary gift. It is a ridiculous inanity to come from a man who has seen the things that Wallace saw. It is understandable that the man of experience may not write at all, and, on the other hand, that a man of secluded life may have the imagination to make a military epic. But for a man crammed with experience of the most dramatic sort and discovering the ability and the ambition to write, for him to make spurious oriental romances which achieve an enormous popularity, the case is too grotesque to be typical. Yet it is exceptional in degree rather than in kind. The American literary artist has written about everything under the skies except what matters most in his own life. General Grant's plain autobiography, not art and of course not attempting to be, is better literature than most of our books in artistic forms because of its intellectual integrity and the profound importance of the subject matter. Our dreamers have dreamed about many wonderful things but their faces have been averted from the mightier issues of life. They have been high-minded, fine-grained, eloquent in manner, in odd contrast to the real or reputed vigor and crudeness of the nation. In the hundred years from Irving's first romance to Mr. Howell's latest unromantic novel, 
most of our books are eminent for just those virtues which america is supposed to lack their physique is feminine they are fanciful dainty reserved they are literose sophisticated in craftsmanship but innocently unaware of the profound agitations of american life of life everywhere those who strike the deeper notes of reality whitman thoreau mark twain mrs stowe in her one great book whittier lowell and emerson at their best are a powerful minority the rest beautiful and fine in spirit too seldom show that they are conscious of contemporaneous realities too seldom vibrate with the tremendous sense of life the jason of western exploration writes as if he passed his life in a library the ulysses of great rivers and perilous seas is a connoisseur of japanese prints the warrior of sixty one rivals miss marie corelli the mining engineer carves cherry stones he was figured as gaunt hardy and aggressive conquering the desert with the steam locomotive sings of a pretty little rose in a pretty little garden the judge haggard with experience who presides over the most tragic-comic divorce court ever devised by man writes love stories that would have made jane austen smile mr arnold bennett is reported to have said that if balzac had seen pittsburgh he would have cried give me a pen the truth is the whole country is crying out for those who will record it satirize it chant it as literary material it is virgin land ancient as life and fresh as a wilderness american literature is one occupation which is not overcrowded in which indeed there is all too little competition for the newcomer to meet there are signs that some earnest young writers are discovering the fertility of a soil that has scarcely been scratched american fiction shows all sorts of merit but the merits are not assembled concentrated the fine is weak and the strong is crude the stories of poe hawthorne howells james aldrich bret hart are admirable in manner but they are thin in substance not of large vitality on the other hand some of the stronger american fictions fail in workmanship for example uncle tom's cabin which is still vivid and moving long after its tractarian interests have faded the novels of frank norris a man of great vision and high purpose who attempted to put national economics into something like an epic of daily bread and herman melville's moby dick a madly eloquent romance of the sea a few american novelists have felt the meaning of the life they knew and have tried sincerely to set it down but have for various reasons failed to make first-rate novels for example edward eggleston whose stories of early indiana have the breath of actuality in them mr e w howe author of the story of a country town harold frederick a man of great ability whose work was growing deeper more significant when he died george w cable whose novels are unsteady and sentimental but who gives a genuine impression of having portrayed a city and its people and stephen crane who dead at thirty had given in the red badge of courage and maggie 
the promise of better work. Of good short stories, America has been prolific. Mrs. Wilkins Freeman, Mrs. Annie Trumbull Slauson, Sarah Orne Jewett, Roland Robinson, H.C. Bunner, Edward Everett Hale, Frank Stockton, Joel Chandler Harris, and O. Henry are some of those whose short stories are perfect in their several kinds. But the American novel, which multiplies past counting, remains an inferior production. On a private shelf of contemporary fiction and drama in the English language are the works of ten British authors, Mr. Galsworthy, Mr. H.G. Wells, Mr. Arnold Bennett, Mr. Eden Philpotts, Mr. George Moore, Mr. Leonard Merrick, Mr. J.C. Snaith, Miss May Sinclair, Mr. William de Morgan, Mr. Maurice Hewlett, Mr. Joseph Conrad, Mr. Bernard Shaw, yes, and Mr. Rudyard Kipling. Besides them, I find but two Americans, Mrs. Edith Wharton and Mr. Theodore Dreiser. There may be others, for one cannot pretend to know all the living novelists and dramatists, Yet for every American that should be added, I would agree to add four to the British list. However, a contemporary literature that includes Mrs. Wharton's Ethan Frome and Mr. Dreiser's Jenny Gerhardt, both published last year, is not to be despaired of. In the course of a century, a few Americans have said in memorable words what life meant to them. Their performance, put together, is considerable, if not imposing. Any sense of dissatisfaction that one feels in contemplating it is due to the disproportion between a limited expression and the multifarious immensity of the country. Our literature, judged by the great literatures contemporaneous with it, is insufficient to the opportunity and the need. The American spirit may be figured as petitioning the muses for twelve novelists, ten poets, and eight dramatists to be delivered at the earliest possible moment. End of section one. Read by Malcolm Cameron, Mystic, Connecticut.